I was in kind of a, a pretty deep funk a couple weeks ago. We were a couple weeks into this new hybrid Sunday morning thing where we have about 50 people in the pews, everybody's masked, everybody's distanced. I sort of, I think foolishly, I thought that like when we could have people back in the building, it would be like flipping a switch and everything would just like return to normal. I knew that wasn't the case, but I wasn't prepared for how, um, how awful it would feel to sit here hearing Bruce play a hymn so beautifully on the organ and not be able to sing. Um, I found myself really struggling with that. It made me angry, actually, and to a certain degree, like when we, when we launched into All Glory, Lord, and Honor this morning and we started marching down the aisle, like I could still feel this like kind of visceral anger, like don't take the hymns from me, this belonged to me. I had gotten pretty used to doing church like in a TV studio, right, with an empty cathedral. We did that for a year, and when we started bringing you back, I was not prepared for how much time it would take, how much time it's going to take to get us back to where we were before this all started. And that lack of being able to sing is really, is really hard. You, you all, so those of you who have worshipped in this cathedral before on a Palm Sunday with a, with a full space full of bodies, you know the sound I'm talking about, right? When this cathedral vibrates with human voices raised. And I, boy, I just really, um, I'm really missing that. It's harder, it's harder for me than just about anything else, especially this year. The, the music that we, that we do this time of year, the music of Holy Week and Easter, that is the music that keeps me a Christian after all these years, and I felt like it was like taken from me, and I was, <laughs> I was angry, <laughs> I, was pretty, I was pretty angry about it. So uh, in times like that, you need a good friend, you need a mentor who can sort of pick you back up and remind you of what this whole thing is about. Um, and my mentor and friend in this case is sitting right here in the cathedral, it's Jim Bethel, many of you know him. Uh, I went out to coffee with Jim, and you know, he was, he was a good pastor, he didn't try to talk me out of my funk, he, uh, he empathized with me, he let me pontificate a little bit. He let me kind of get up on my high horse about what a desecration of Christian liturgy this is, and I can't defend it theologically, and kind of go off on this whole ramble thing, and kind of nodded along, like, yes, Nathan, I know how you get when you get on your high dudgeon, and I love you, and uh, then, you know, he, he let me weep a little bit, right? He, he kind of let me process some of the grief that I was experiencing, and underneath the grief, this deeper fear that, that there's this way that we were together before all of this happened, and my fear that it will not come back right, that things have, have changed, and not just on church, right, I, I think about this in terms of so many places in our society where, you know, we're starting to return and things are, they still feel weird, but we can kind of imagine what it might feel for things to return to normal, and yet underneath it, at least for me, there's this real fear that stuff has changed so irrevocably that I'll wake up one morning, a year, five years, ten years from now, and think, I miss what used to be, I don't want to do this new thing. I don't know if I'm cut out for the new, the new world, the new church. I was not trained for this new thing. What if I can't do it? What if I just don't want to do this anymore? And Jim looked straight in my eyes and he said, Nathan, something is dying, right? You know that. Our culture is experiencing a death of something. Some of it probably needed to die a long time ago. Some of it is going to be hard when it goes. Something has died at Trinity, and you're grieving that thing. You're hanging on to what was. Of course you are. But he said, Nathan, you of all people, you know, I've heard you preach the sermon, right? You know death is not the end. You've done funerals. You know what we say, that for God's faithful people, life is changed, not ended. That is our story. That's the gospel we preach. And Jim looked deep into my eyes. You remember this, Jim? You looked into my eyes and you said, Nathan, you know this story because it's happened to you. You already know this story.
I think each of us knows this story, right? The story that we just heard, the one that we rehearse every year. I'm not unique in that sense. We know this story when we let ourselves go there, right? And sometimes church is the only place where we can kind of let it kind of drop for a second and let ourselves just go back into the story. It's a story about death, right? And we know death. We know what happens when our dreams fall apart. We recognize the the bitter taste of failure in our mouths, the rock bottom of a sleepless night. We know what it means to lose our friends, to hold our loved ones as they breathe their last. Some of us probably know a little bit about this horrific violence, the degree of of human evil we get in this story, the, the awful things that the weapons of men do to human flesh, whether those weapons are spears and swords, or as we're seeing today, automatic assault weapons. We are seeing crucifixions happen in our world every single day. We have seen bleeding and death, this year especially. We have seen so much death. And when Jesus cries out to God from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think each of us knows that feeling in some way or another. We know a little bit about what abandonment feels like. We've all got our little, our little version of Golgotha. And so we learn, as people learned 2,000 years ago, we learn, right, how to push it away. We don't talk about it, we don't like to think about it. After he died, a friend of mine sent me an article that our former canon theologian, Marcus Ford, many of you remember Marcus, 30 years ago, Marcus wrote an article for Christian Century called Death as a Wisdom Teacher, and I have come back to that article frequently, especially in, in times like this, when it feels like death is staring me right in the face. Marcus wrote, our language is filled with all these euphemisms about death, right? Somebody passed away, we lost Uncle Ned, like we couldn't find him. Graveyards become cemeteries, and then they become memorial gardens, the corpse becomes the remains, burial becomes interment, and the death certificate becomes the vital statistics form. Our language, he says, betrays much about us. We are as uncomfortable with the words death and dying as an earlier generation was with language of sexuality. I think Marcus was right. We are uncomfortable with the language. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. Certainly not at a cocktail party. I would never walk up to somebody I'd never known at a cocktail party over martinis and be like, so how do you think you're going to die? Like, that would not go over well. So we find places like this, right? At a deeper level, I think we long to talk about this stuff. We look for safe ways to confront it, to, to learn before it's too late how to befriend the one that St. Francis of Assisi called Sister Death, who is waiting with arms open to embrace us. We come to church on a day like today, we take our place in this story once again. We play the role that we are asked to play, the crowd, the mocking ones, the taunting ones who have seen a thousand crucifixions play out and have learned how to look away, right, just as we have. How well have we learned to avert our eyes from the human, often very violent suffering happening all about us? The people in Jerusalem were the same way. But today, rather than averting our eyes and getting squeamish or silly about it, we're asked to sit, if only for a moment, to sit with those places in our life where death has touched us. Maybe a place that we're careful not to go most of the time. There is a crucifixion in every one of our lives. We all have a Golgotha. We already know this story. Each of us has a Golgotha. Mine is the, uh, the uh, PDX airport baggage claim. It's carousel six. 
Airport baggage claims are already kind of like the sixth circle of hell on a good day. So uh, <laughs> some of you have probably experienced that, right? Your own sort of personal version of airport hell. Uh, although these days it's like, God, I mean, send me back to the airport. Like I'll get on a plane in a heartbeat. But you know, that's, that's before. I did not expect that Carousel 6 at, uh, at PDX would be my own personal Golgotha. We don't plan these things. But that was the place two years ago where my husband James turned to me as we were waiting for our bags and said, I think it's time for me to move out of the house. I think we need a trial separation. This marriage is killing me, and I need to get out. It was the day that I had feared the most. At a certain level, it was a day that I had always somehow kind of known was coming. It was a culmination of many conversations. We had fought that moment of reckoning. We had these deep commitments to, you know, various commitments, sacred promises, the family we had formed, the home we shared. We had a good marriage, James and I. Many of you were, many of you were in your various ways a part of it. You were here when James and I made our vows at that altar. You have been a part of this relationship for the past decade. The eight years that I spent married to James were the best eight years of my life. And those eight years almost killed us, both of us. I can see that now. Something had to die in order for both of us to live. And that thing turned out to be our marriage itself. Death finds us in all kinds of ways, not just physically, right? And the other side of a death like that. The other side can look pretty terrifying at the outset. James and I walked through a whole year and a half of separation before we finally made the decision to end our marriage. Those were two of the hardest years I have known. But I would not exchange a single one of those days. I would not exchange any one of the eight years that preceded them. There are all kinds of reasons why marriages end. Divorce is almost always complicated and wrenching. Sometimes there is very real physical danger for one of the parties. Anything that looks like reconciliation, right, is not always possible. Nine times out of 10, the havoc that divorce can wreck on lives is, is extreme. In our case, what James and I discovered as we released one another from the legal bonds that bound us is that for the first time, we began to actually be able to live the vows that we had made to one another at that altar. We had kind of a weird, you know, it was the hybrid trial liturgy for same-gender couples. So we didn't do the traditional wedding vows, so we couldn't. We were kind of, I guess, mercifully granted these alternative vows that the church had come up with. And they're actually vows that I have come to really love. James and I promised when Bishop Michael blessed our union that we would support and care for one another, that we would hold and cherish one another in the love of Christ, and that we would honor and love one another with the Spirit's help. I will be perfectly honest. For eight years, I failed to do that. I failed to support and care for my husband. I failed to hold and cherish him with the love of Christ. But I failed to honor and love him with the Spirit's help. Many of you know James, right? He is a powerful, intense, compassionate, and very sexy child of God who lives his life out loud, unapologetically, with great integrity and fabulous footwear. And mostly, I failed to see all of that when we were married. But those are the parts of James, the courage of his convictions, his, his willingness, like Jesus, to risk the hostile stare when his life attracts or scares, as our hymn says. That's the part of James that found a voice at baggage carousel number six at PDX. He's described that moment to me as a voice that came from him almost like it was an out-of-body experience. And I think I have a sense of where that voice came from, the voice, that, the voice of death, the voice that ended our marriage. I think it was the Spirit of God speaking through my husband. I don't have another way of understanding this. James was the one who had the courage 
to do something when I was caught in shame and fear and this desperate attempt to hang on to social respectability, the part of my husband that I struggled to honor in our marriage is the part of him that saved me. And it's the part of him that gave me my life back. So I'm so grateful. I'm just so grateful for the person that Catherine Nichols would have called my husband, the person who took the risk of causing both of us so much pain in order to put us onto this different path, this holy journey we are on now as ex-spouses who have not stopped loving one another. And it turns out that love was actually never about that silly little piece of paper. I mean, queer people have known this for, for decades, right? The people of God have always known this. The love that Jesus embodies has never needed social legitimacy in order to thrive. We have always known how to create a family, how to find love and fulfillment in unexpected corners and abandoned places. Jesus is the one who teaches us how to do that, the one who, the one who said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So this is the only thing I know about what our tradition calls the Paschal Mystery, this weird idea that life and abundance are what lie on the other side of every death, no matter how much pain, suffering, agony, or change that death brings. That new thing might look completely different from what came before. I think we're experiencing some of that here at Trinity right now. Whatever it is we're shifting into, whatever has died, whatever is being reborn in our midst, that thing is going to look different from what we knew before. It might be unrecognizable when it starts showing its face, but the name of that difference, the name of that newness, that, that unrecognizable alien life, nine times out of ten, that new thing that shows up in the very spot death threatened to take over and claim, the name of that thing is healing and wholeness. The name of that new, horrible, beautiful thing that lies on the other side of every death. The name of that thing is resurrection.